Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on December 26th, Lord's Day service. days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And down to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Teach us to live soberly, righteously, and godly lives by the power of the Spirit. We pray all this for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. Since today is the day after Christmas, it's fitting that we look at what happened in the days after Jesus was born. It's also fitting that since Jesus is God's answer to sin that there's a lot of sin in this story. Here we have a crime openly committed under the protection of the government with the assistance of untrustworthy religious leaders and the backing of the people. The story begins with a sharp contrast between the wise men from the east and the unscrupulous jealousy of Herod. Notice Herod's reaction to hearing that a king of the Jews is born. We see in verse 3 that Herod is troubled. Verse 4, he assembles the Jewish leaders. In verse 7, he secretly summons the wise men. And then, verse 8, he dispatches the wise men to track down Jesus and bring Jesus to him. The quotation of Micah 5.2, that's found in verse 6, shows how Jesus' birthplace indicates his status as the coming ruler. The star that's mentioned in verses 9 through 10 
echoes Balaam's prophecy found in Numbers 24, speaking of a star out of Jacob. So the birth of Jesus is a threat to Herod and his rule. So Herod orders the young boys in and around Bethlehem killed, thinking surely this will include the baby king, the rival king. And our focus this morning is how the birth of Jesus disrupts the status quo. And we'll see three ways that the birth of Jesus disrupts the status quo. First, we see that Jesus disrupts the status quo of the corrupt kingdom of Herod. And so who is Herod anyway? Well, the Herod in this story is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is different from the Herod from Mark chapter 6 and the John the Baptist story that we looked at two weeks ago. That's a different Herod that comes in the line of Herod. This is Herod the Great. Herod the Great in this story, in Matthew chapter 2, is the king of the Jews from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. His father was named Antipater. His father was a Jew of Edomite descent, and he, his father, was appointed to a high position in Judea by Julius Caesar in, eight, or, excuse me, in 47 B.C. So Antipater takes his power and then gives his son, Herod, a cushy job. And that's how Herod the Great comes into this position. Herod the Great gets the job of military governor over Galilee. Herod immediately demonstrates his brutal strength by the way he suppresses law-breaking. After several promotions through the Roman government, Herod is given the title King of the Jews. Using Roman soldiers, Herod crushes all opposition to his rule. So Herod the Great, the Herod in this story, he is wealthy, he is politically gifted, he is intensely loyal, he's an excellent administrator, and he's clever enough to remain in the good graces of the Roman emperors. His famine relief program is superb, and his building projects, including the Jerusalem temple, are impressive. And the thing about Herod is that Herod loves power. He loves power. And Herod inflicts heavy taxes on the people, and he resents the fact that many Jews don't like him. And history tells us that in his last years, his brutality was raised to an even more cruel level. When threats to his power emerged, in fits of rage and jealousy, he killed close associates, he killed his wife, and we know that he killed at least two of his sons because they rivaled his power. Herod's brutality manifests any time there is a threat to his power. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 2, it's no surprise that when rumors that a rival baby king of the Jews is born, well, Herod's worst fears are roused. And so we read in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And so let's understand, why is Herod troubled? Well, hearing that a king is born who's worthy of worship is a threat to his power, and that's the thing he is most jealous for, keeping his own power, keeping his own kingdom. And so when he hears news of a baby king born, that is a threat to his kingdom. See, Herod is a king who does not rule justly. 
Israel was in bondage to a foreign power, and Herod is the agent of Caesar Augustus to rule over Israel. Herod is the overlord of Israel. And again, the most important thing in the world to Herod is keeping his power. And so he is threatened, jealous, and envious of any rivals to his power. So what does Herod do when he hears a rival king is born? Well, in verse 16 we read this. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. So we see, what's Herod's response? Well, Herod is a murderer. And in the case of Herod, murder is motivated by envy and hate. The great Puritan Thomas Watson pointed out that murder can be committed in many different ways. Murder can be done with the hand, as seen in 2 Samuel 20, verse 10. Murder can be done with the mind, since, according to 1 John 3:15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. It may be done with the tongue, as seen when the Jews explained to Pilate why Jesus must die in John 18:30. Murder may be done with the pen. Like when David wrote a letter ordering the murder of Uriah in 2 Samuel 11:15, Murder may be done through a plot, like when Jezebel schemed to kill Naboth in 1 Kings 21. It may be done by witchcraft, as Deuteronomy 18:10 suggests. Murder may be done by consent, like when Saul in Acts 7 consented to Stephen's murder. Murder may be done by cowardice, seen in the way Pilate gives the crowds what they want when Jesus is crucified. And, as we see in Matthew chapter 2 in the case of Herod the Great, murder may be done with intention and scheming and planning. And given Herod's position and disposition, this is an entirely predictable and natural response. Look at Herod's slaughter of the innocents. And you see Herod's disease. He would rather keep power than rejoice with great joy at the birth of this king, as did the wise man. He would rather keep power and murder an entire generation of children rather than deal with a threat to his power. This is the disease of Herod. The disease of Herod is that he rebels against the message of righteousness. And this is exactly what happens anytime kingdoms are in conflict. You see, this is a war of kingdoms, and Herod knows that. Jesus is a threat to the status quo of Herod's dynasty. The birth of Jesus is intended to mean that the old way of ruling mankind is sunk. Of the increase of the Lord's government, there will be no end. And Herod may not know what that means, but he doesn't like it. And we all, by default, set ourselves up as kings in our own little kingdoms, jealous for our own power, jealous for getting our way. And that is why the four-year-old argues about bedtime. The four-year-old argues about bedtime not because he's educated on sleep hygiene. He doesn't know what a sleep study is. 
A four-year-old doesn't know how much sleep children need. You see, for the four-year-old, it's not a battle of ideas. It's not an intellectual exercise. For the four-year-old, it's a battle of kingship. That's why the four-year-old argues about bedtime. And now this is easy to think about when we're talking about the four-year-old. You know, isn't that cute? But think about this. Do you get irked with others because they break God's law? or because they break your law? Do you get agitated with others because they lack allegiance to God or because they lack allegiance to you? So don't you see it? The problem of modern America, the problem that's living probably within all of our hearts right now is that too many of us are in the grip of the Herodian delusion. That is, we are jealous for self-rule. We are jealous for our power which adds up to getting our way. And we have envy and hate to towards those who dare step over the boundaries of our kingdom. Now the good news is that Jesus was born to destroy Herod's kingdom. But not just Herod's kingdom, your kingdom. And the really good news is that when God establishes His kingdom in your heart, you are liberated from the bondage of self-regard so that you now prefer his kingdom rather than your own. And so what this story is about is Jesus is coming to disrupt the status quo. And the first thing we see is that Jesus disrupts the status quo of the corrupt kingdom of Herod. But he doesn't just disrupt Herod's kingdom. He disrupts all of our kingdoms. The second way we see Jesus disrupting the status quo in this passage is that Jesus disrupts the status quo of the untrustworthy religious leaders. Look with me at verse 4. It says, Herod, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5, 2 to Herod. So let's think about this. Why does Herod assemble the high priestly clan and the scribes? Well, he wants to find out where the Messiah is born. And why does he want to know where the Messiah is born? Well, as we just saw, he wants to destroy the new rival king. And so then we have to ask when we read this passage, what are the religious leaders doing? What are they doing? What are they thinking? The scribes help Herod by quoting a messianic prophecy that says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which then helps Herod attempt to hunt down the Messiah and kill him. So make sure you see what's going on in this passage. The religious leaders know that Herod is talking about the anticipated messianic shepherd of God's people. And instead of acting on that knowledge to fend off the bloodthirsty Herod, they help him. They are Herod's accomplices in the attempted elimination of the Messiah. And notice another thing. How do the religious leaders help the enemy? How do they help Herod? How do they help the enemy? Well, in verse 6, they quote Scripture to the enemy. Not to defeat him, like Jesus quoted Scripture to the devil when, they were, when the devil was tempting him in the desert. No, 
They quote Scripture to the enemy to help him. You see, the religious leaders possess the Old Testament. They are the keepers of the Old Testament. They believe the Old Testament is the Word of God. They have signed the biblical inerrancy statement when they took their vows. And now they use the Old Testament, which they have confessed and truly believe is the Word of God, to try and destroy God's plan. And unfortunately, this is not a pattern isolated to ancient Israel. This is a pattern that we see in our own day. It says in verse 4 that it is the chief priest and the scribes of the people who do this. This is the appointed and respected religious leaders who are using God's word to destroy God's plan. So this is the group of people whose podcast you listen to every week. This is the group of people whose books you read. This is the group of people who speak at the national conferences. These are the group of people who are published by the big name evangelical publishing houses who you think are trustworthy. These are the people who set the talking points of the movement, and they are the ones working with the enemy. And you look at this and you think, okay, are they doing this on purpose? Or are they duped by Herod? And it does not say, and it does not matter. Either way, it is a failure of leadership. The religious leaders who have signed the biblical inerrancy statement, who are respected, whose podcasts we all listen to, the religious leaders in this story have no understanding of what Herod is doing. They have no understanding of the times. They have no understanding of what Israel ought to do. They have no understanding of how they ought to behave towards their overlord, Herod, when Herod makes tyrannical demands on them. You know, like seeking to kill children. Instead, what do they do? Instead, they take the Bible that they think is God's Word and they use divine revelation to help Herod try to kill Jesus. Now, we've already pointed out, and you know as well as I do, that this is not an isolated problem to ancient Israel. And so we read this story, we see the pattern that's here, and we have to ask, what can we learn from this? Well, this shows us that it's not enough for religious leaders to possess the Bible. It's not enough for religious leaders to have a seminary degree, as they did. It's not enough for religious leaders to believe the Bible is God's divinely inspired word. It's not enough for religious leaders to sign the inerrancy statement. You see, you can do all of these things and yet still use God's Word to help the enemy, either knowingly or unknowingly, and it doesn't matter which. And so then we have to ask, what are we to do, knowing that we live in a similar situation as is happening in ancient Israel? What are we to do about this in our own day? Well. Evangelicals need to realize that what matters most is not if the pastor or the author or the podcaster or the seminary professor will sign the inerrancy statement. Even the scribes would have done that. What matters most is what you actually do with the scriptures. 
Just because religious leaders sign the inerrancy statement doesn't mean they won't use the Bible to help the enemy. And so, let's reset. What's going on in this passage? Jesus, in this passage, the birth of Jesus disrupts the status quo. And in the first point, we see that Jesus disrupts the status quo of the wicked ruler Herod. And in the second point, we see that Jesus disrupts the status quo of untrustworthy religious leaders because at the sight of Jesus, they put themselves against God rather than for them. For him, And how do they do that? Well, they sign the inerrancy statement and then use the inerrant Bible to aid the enemy of God. That is a pattern that we need to be aware of. And so this is a passage about Jesus disrupting the status quo. And the third thing we need to see in this passage is that Jesus disrupts the status quo of the complacent population. Look with me again at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, when you read that passage, when you read Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it makes complete sense why Herod was troubled at the news of a rival king. We've already explained that. That makes sense. But then you get to the end of verse 3, and you read that all Jerusalem is also troubled, just like Herod is troubled. And that doesn't make sense. Why are the people of Jerusalem also troubled? Why are the Jews in Jerusalem also troubled? I mean, in general, the Jews despise Herod. Yet here it says that the people of Jerusalem share Herod's dismay at the news of the birth of the royal child. What would bother Jerusalem about the coming Messiah? I mean, after all, the prophecy from Micah 5.2 makes clear that the coming of the Messiah is good news, and it will make God's name great to the ends of the earth. Why would Jews have problem with that? What's the problem? Why are they troubled by their coming Messiah? Well, the first thing to notice in verse 3 is that Jerusalem is troubled. Not Bethlehem, not Galilee. It's Jerusalem. It's the capital city. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is troubled. And so that means the Jews in Jerusalem who are close to the seat of power, they're the ones who are troubled. You see, the problem for them is that the system is good for them. The system is good for Jerusalem's ruling class. It's good for the Jews who live in Jerusalem. See, the coming of the Messiah is good news for the world because the Messiah will bring justice and salvation for his people. But the coming of the Messiah is bad news for the Jews in Jerusalem for exactly the same reason. Because Jesus is coming to bring justice and salvation for his people. You see, Jerusalem is a capital city. Jerusalem is a city sustained by economic exploitation. It's the capital city, it's the seat of power, it's Herod's base of operations. All of the money flows out of Herod's office. And as often happens when there is strong centralized government, the people of the nation are taxed heavily, and the people who benefit most are the ruling class who live in the capital, who live in Jerusalem. Jerry Bauer has written a book about this explaining the economic system in Judah during the first century and how the ruling class is exploiting the people. 
And Herod knows that the coming of Christ will be an earth-shattering event for him and for all of the hangers-on, for all of the ruling class who depend on Herod for their salary, who depend on Herod for their livelihood. Herod knows, and seemingly, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, the ruling class in Jerusalem also know that Christ's coming is going to upend their good deal. It's going to upend the nations, it's going to upend their rulers, and it's going to upend all those who experience comfort and wealth because of those rulers. And so the coming of the Messiah will destroy the entire economy of Jerusalem. Herod's tyranny, which is held in place, history has well documented this fact, Herod's tyranny held in place by mass employment of workers through large public works projects threatens the ruling class of Jerusalem and those who live off government money. And so verse 3 says, not only is Herod troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. Now you see why. So then we look at this, what can we learn from this? Well, just think about this. The people of Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem, who supposedly want to be faithful, theoretically want to be faithful to the Lord, the people of Jerusalem set themselves against their Messiah because he will disrupt the status quo. He will disrupt the source of their prosperity. And in this, they must have been thinking a hundred things. They must have been thinking, well, if the Messiah is here, well, that could mean a clash with our Roman overlords, upon whom we depend for our prosperity. And so what will come of this if the Messiah is truly here? War, strife, death, disruption, disruption of my job, of my source of income? If the Messiah comes and disrupts our profitable arrangement with Herod, will everything be okay? Will I be able to take the kids on that vacation? Will everything be all right? And if it's not okay and it's not all right, well, what then? You see, their questions must have been many. And so are the lessons we need to learn. Consider quickly three lessons we need to learn from this unique story. The first lesson is beware of economic entanglement with a wicked government. It might lead you to seek the approval of Herod rather than the approval of the Lord. Second, beware of siding with governments that tax people heavily. It might lead you to depend on the benefits of that unjust taxation, which then puts you in a whole moral problem that you've got to deal with. And the third lesson, Beware of overly concerning yourself with being okay and being all right and being comfortable because it might miss you, lead you to miss the salvation that comes with the royal baby laying in the manger. And so what we see in this passage is that Jesus has come to disrupt the status quo. And what we also see in this passage is that the Bible is a lot more than just interesting stories. The Messiah came to earth, and that means something. And one of the things it means is the disruption of the status quo of wicked leaders and those whose jobs depend on them. This is part of the great redemptive meaning of Christmas. The birth of the royal baby marches towards the death of the Savior on the cross to purchase our forgiveness. 
And if we are too committed to the status quo that's propped up by wicked men, well, then we might miss the fact that our loyalty and allegiance belong to Jesus Christ alone. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we know that Christ came to rescue us from sin's judgment. We ask that you restore us to the happiness, honor, and justice that is found within your kingdom, even if that means you must disrupt the poorly chosen status quo in our own life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.